Hi, my name is Rich Nadwarney, and welcome to Innovation Explorers, Hello Futures podcast that dives into the challenges and rewards of innovation. Each episode, we talk with people on the front lines of innovation and change work as they share their unique perspectives on some of the most common issues we face. This podcast is primarily for those of you working in large and mid-sized organizations who want to get your change and innovation initiatives moving faster, better, and with more internal alignment. In this episode, I'm speaking with Maria Judice, who founded the design shop Hot Studio and worked as global design director for Facebook and Autodesk. In this episode, Maria talks about her new book, Changemakers, How Leaders Can Design Change in an Insanely Complex World. In this episode, I'm speaking with Maria Judice, who founded the design shop Hot Studio and worked as global design director for Facebook and Autodesk. In this episode, Maria talks about her new book, Changemakers, How Leaders Can Design Change in an Insanely Complex World, a follow-up to her 2013 book, Rise of the DEO, Leadership by Design. Maria shares with us her strategies for enabling motivated individuals to initiate and lead significant change and how change makers, innovators, and designers need to be smart about navigating a system in which they may be seen as a foreign element. And she notes that in order to be a change maker, you have to be optimistic about the future. Welcome, Maria Judice, to Innovation Explorers. It's really fun to have you as a guest. Well, Rich, I'm really happy to see you, and we're going to have some fun today. Maria, you and I are on kind of a five-year schedule. I don't know whether you've realized <laughs> it. I, I met you the first time in 2013 when you're, you had just sold Hot Studio, I think, to Facebook, mm-hmm. and you were the design lead at Facebook, and I was doing my leadership by design class at California College of Arts, and you invited us in to visit Facebook, which is kind of cool. Mm. And then five years later, you were in Stockholm for Business to Buttons, where we met after the concert and had a uh, or the conference and had a beer, and now it's five years after that. We're like cicadas. I did not realize that we're cicadas. <laughs> that's that's the first time anybody has ever accused me of being a cicada. Well, it's time to spread your wings and fly, baby. That's I think what this is all about. Wow, wow, that is pretty impressive. Okay, what we're. we're what are we going to do in five years' time? We're, we're, what shall we do? Uh, well, you know, <laughs> we're building up. It gets kind of better know, every time. I know. But Maria, you've just written a new book. Yes, my fourth book. Fourth book about change makers. Mm-hmm. And the previous book that you've written mm-hmm. was called "The Rise of the DEO." That's correct. The Design Executive Officer. And so I'm kind of. I have kind of two questions. One is. What happened to the DEO? Okay. Let's start with that. That was a okay. really good idea, I thought. The design executive officer. Yeah. I was expecting, wow, we're going to see a lot of that. Yeah. Well, what happened it, to that? Well, when you think about it, the change maker is an extension of the design executive officer. But let me explain. So in 2011, I was, one of, I was leading Hot Studio as CEO. 
And I was asked to give a TEDx talk. And I was, I didn't know what to talk about. Uh, I, you know, I was working with some speech coaches and I, I uh, from this uh, company called Tech Talks, Kevin O'Malley and Christy Danes. And I was telling Kevin and Christy, it's like, I don't have anything unique to offer here. You know, I don't, I'm not really sure what I'm going to talk about. And they looked at me flabbergasted. They're like, what? It's like, you lead a company differently than anybody else we ever have met. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't know that because, you know, I, yeah, I ran a company and, um, and I didn't go to business school. I, I'm a designer. And so I treat everything like a design problem. And that's how I led the company. And she goes, you know, you know what you are, Maria, you are a DEO, a design executive officer. So I have to give credit to Christy Danes for calling me a design executive officer. And then I started thinking about what that meant. And I had this very pr provocative hypothesis at that time, which was if leaders can, can be more like designers, they'll be better suited to design future problems. So the qualities of a DEO are change agent, risk taker, intuition, systems thinking, and people-centeredness and getting shit done. Those, when you, you know, you kind of break down the components of what we do for a living as designers, it's those things. And, and so I put it out there and said, if leaders can be more like designers and designers can be more like business people, you are gonna have some kick-ass kick combination leader. And so that was in 2011. And at that time, Christopher Ireland, my sort of partner in crime, she came up to me, she was there at the talk that I gave. And she said, you know, there's a book here. Let's do a book together. So that really began the first time we collaborated uh, mm. as co-authors was Rise of the DEO. And then here, that was, the book came out in 2013. And then here we are 10 years later, where we're seeing design driven leaders at the top of many, many organizations. So are my- you, Are you seeing that? Where yes. are you seeing that? Oh, well, you know, you live you live in Europe, but here in, in, the, in the US, there are more and more leaders in executive positions than ever before that are design driven. And mm -hmm. so you're seeing either more, more leaders who are leveraging those qualities to lead companies, more business people who are thinking like designers, and you're seeing more designers who are stepping into chief design officer roles, VP roles, you know, some designers became CEOs like the guys from Airbnb. So you're seeing more right. DEO qualities in every, not only in business, but in government, in education. And so that, so, I mean, it's slow moving. It's not like revolution, you know, but, but a lot a lot has changed in those 10 years and the power design is being leveraged so that's 10 years later and then when i was vp of design at autodesk i was in a very high position i was two steps away from the ceo 
And I was, it was a fundamentally different job than I've ever had before. Uh, you know, being in that kind of position at Autodesk, I was more of an agent of change. I was more of somebody who is, who is trying to make cultural change happen at scale. And I did a lot of things great. I felt, I, I felt like I, I, you know, learned, it was definitely on the job learning to be doing that job. I, and I, I felt like I made a lot of great progress, but I also made a lot of mistakes. And so that after leaving that job, I had moments of reflection and I said, oh, this is a, this is different. This is a different role that the DEO is one, but stepping into leading change at scale is, a, is again, is sort of next level in leadership. And so how they're related is the DEO is about change agents. So think of this as going deep on that quality from being a change agent to become a change maker. So they are connected. And I, and I consider the change maker as next, next step up level leadership. That was another question I had. Is it a you can read this book as a leadership challenge, but you can also read it as an individual challenge. There are a number of individuals within companies who are change makers, and you kind of describe the atmosphere that they have to, you know, navigate through to actually make change, which is, you know, it's quite a trip. Yeah. And and, and you kind of describe this, right? As change makers are people who can see patterns around them, identify the problems in any situation, figure out ways to solve the problems, organize fluid teams, lead collective action, and then continually adapt as situation change. And it's like, <laughs> well, that's a, that's a lot right there. Well, that is, I didn't write that. That is uh, a definition from Bill Drayton, who was the CEO of Ashoka. And he coined the phrase change maker in 1981. But when I read that when I read that quote, that definition of what a change maker was, that was the lightning bolt in the chess moment, because that is the quintessential definition of what a designer is. And you're absolutely right. When we talk about change makers, we don't, we're not talking about the DEO level, right? It, it, yep. You can be a change maker at any level in an organization or in your social system. It's being a change maker and a leader, I think, is more of a state of mind than it is a job title. Well, it's interesting, too. One of the things I really liked about the book was even though you talk, you know, you're talking about design and you, you've mentioned being a designer, you're talking about innovation in kind of everything you're doing, but you're not using any of those words. And we, I find that especially when we, you know, working in the public sector in Sweden, where there's a big push for innovation and no one really is, knows what it means. And sometimes it's digitalization and sometimes it's something else that as soon as we start saying change, then we can start having a little bit of a more honest conversation about what's really happening and what's needed there. But it's hard to kind of get through these labels, to be honest, of design and innovation instead of we're trying to make significant positive change. A hundred percent agree. We get really people tend to get really stuck on words and they tell stories around certain words uh, where the meaning could be different from one person to the other. And 
Innovation is one of those words that's misunderstood. Design is certainly misunderstood. And change can be misunderstood, but everybody is in everybody is impacted by change. And so, and depending on the context, you're going to get wildly different emotional contexts when you're dealing with change. You know, some change is going to feel really good and some change is going to feel really bad. And that's what makes design designing change so complicated because it's connected to emotions. And when emotions get triggered, uh, behaviors and actions are going to be different. That's it, so true. And, and we see that a lot when you ask people to change. No one really wants to change if they're given the choice, right? You, you like doing what, what you know how to do and what you feel comfortable and confident right. doing. I, I really liked in the book you talked about you you talk about this concept of change and we think to, when we thought of change in the fifties and sixties, it was very positive, right? Improved and we were going to go to the moon and all these benefits were going to come out of this, and then we kind of lost that a little bit. Change became something a little more uncertain or even threatening. But you really you you've talked about this idea of change as developing a future state in concert with people affected by it. And I think that's really, to me, the, a great definition of, of develop a future state with those affected by it. It reminds me a little bit of what Roger Martin, he dis, defines innovation as, you know, customer-driven, right? Mm -hmm. It provides a benefit to someone else, right? And so this idea of we create these things together, and, and that comes from, I mean, you're a great designer. You've worked with design for a lot of years you've led design great design companies independently and in huge organizations. So this change seems to come from your sense as a designer, does it not? Well, you read the Drayton definition, right, of what it means to lead change. And we both went, oh, oh God, that is a design definition. So design equals change and change equals design. They are interchangeable, right? So therefore, change can be designed. And that's sort of the mm. that's sort of the big insight about this book, right? Is that design equals change. Nobody hires a design team to maintain the status quo. Right? So so it change is fundamentally a design problem. So why not think of it that way? And when you can apply all the goodness, all the great tooling that designers have to, to create and change things. Designers typically change and make things, artifacts, right? But instead of just using that to make a product or a service, apply those ideas to systems and culture. And anybody could use these tools. Anybody could think like a designer you know, if they treat it like a strategy. So these are, this when this is really about an invitation for anybody to embrace design as a strategy to lead change. Thanks. You, you've also, I, I like how you've kind of broken the last, you know, 75 years into these historical change-driven eras. You say the 50s to the 80s, they're operationally driven. So I'm thinking of IBM and organizational, right? 
And then you say the 80s to 2000, they're finance driven. It's when we see the rise of all the derivatives and all the fancy, it's all the quants who come in. Mm -hmm. And then 2000 to 2020, it's tech driven. We see the launch of Silicon Valley as the driver. And you're, you're postulating that from 2020, it's design driven, maybe mm -hmm. for the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. Why yes. are you so optimistic? <laughs> well, you know, first of all, the tech bubble hasn't broken. Kind of, right? I mean, in the tech, we grew up in that tech era mostly, and it, it was so optimistic, you know, that technology was going to save problems, right? And, and it did do a lot of amazing things in terms of how we live and work and think. But there's also a dark side to technology, right? And what has happened is our world seems to be more fragmented than ever before. Now, that might just be that might just be perception or it might be reality, but it feels more fragmented. Problems are more globally entwined. You know, the problems are a lot more complex. So we live in a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, which is which is the same as how I would define a wicked problem, right? But now mm. they're, they just seem, it's just much more harder. And you can't solve problems linearly. You know, back in the 50s, it was more about efficiency. It was, it seemed more linear, problem solution driven. Here, you just try to solve a problem and it then can solve that problem, but it could create problems elsewhere down the system. I mean, when I think about Facebook, I think we, you know, we were, when I was there, we were, we were so optimistic, we were solving a specific problem, but what we didn't anticipate and see and have foresight mm -hmm. about all the other problems it created downstream, right? So this is an example of how the problems are so much more complicated and require a different way of thinking. And that's why, again, bringing design in, it requires systems thinking. It, does, it requires us to be focusing on people as the beneficiary of solving those problems. All of these things that we as designers have done all along need to be employed. And I think the post-pandemic world has really solidly ushered in a new era, you know, because when the pandemic happened, the world shut down. The entire world shut down exactly at the same time and nobody knew what to do, right? And it seemed like systems had to get redesigned overnight. Everybody was in designer mode, every single mm. body, every single company, every single social system, every single individual. We were solving problems based on the context that we were living in and the information that we had. That, If that's not an example of design-driven change, I don't know what is. Oh, that's really interesting. You know, I was about to say that, uh, you know, your Facebook example, uh, in tech, in tech, we always wanted things to go viral. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of what's happened with social media. They went viral in a, like a not so good viral way and mm -hmm. caused a lot of pain and illness. Yeah. And then, then we see another virus pop up mm -hmm. that actually helps us change in a better way. So mm -hmm. I, I, that would, I hope that's a really good example of, of that the pandemic made us all designers. Um, you also talk about as a change maker, the things you have to deal with. 
which I you, you also talked about when you were in Autodesk about the cultural change. And you talked about these four parts you need to work with, fear and optimism, passion and values. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those because they seem to me extremely interesting. You know, and I work with those a lot, but it's not something we often talk about that openly. We mm-hmm. talk about the work. Yeah. We don't really talk about kind of the feelings behind the work. Yeah. Well, in order to be a change maker, you have to be optimistic about the future, <laughs> right? That you, you know, so you can step in. Optimi- I would say there's a couple of qualities as a change maker that are absolutely essential. Courage is one. Courage, it requires a lot of courage to be a change maker because failure is inevitable. You know, if you are designing and leading change, you will fail at some point because it's part of the process and it's part of learning. And you're dealing with people who are afraid, right? So like you mentioned that people are afraid of change. You're either, you know, as human beings, we're wired for survival. And so when information comes into our brain system, the brain either labels it something that is a reward response where we should be super happy that 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 change has happened, that uh, event has happened, and that's where we could feel hopeful and optimistic and creative. But there's a very other strong neural pathway that is the survival threat response because as human beings, as sentient beings, we are wired for survival to protect us. And that's where the fear comes in, right? And when people are fearful, they either become aggressive or they would treat with, or they retreat or they freeze, fight, flight, freeze. So this is a natural response in the brain and change makers have to deal with people who are gonna have those responses. So that's where the fear comes in. And then passion, passion is the, I would say, is the juice that keeps people going, right? And values is really, you know, it's kind of your guidepost in terms of what is what you think is right and wrong inside of you. And so because because change is so fluid and it could you could do it for the good or you could do it, you could have bad intentions. you're going to be driven by your values to know what's the right path to take. So those are some of the qualities that are important as a leader of change. And and as you say in the book, you know, these are like muscles that we have to train. Yes. We have these intrinsically. Yes. But we don't always use them. We're not really Mm -hmm. trained to use them in our day-to-day work often. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of, you know, of both optimism and fear Mm-hmm. We're not really good at dealing with people who are fearful and resistant. Yeah. So especially when we're optimistic. It's like, well, why don't they understand <laughs> right. me, right? The yes. idiots, right? Instead of <laughs> sitting down and trying to figure out what, what's really getting in the way here. And, yeah. And I, again, the passion is, right, you're going to have to drive through this resistance. Do you, is your fuel tank full? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think was re- extremely interesting to me in this book was you know, you're talking about change makers and you're, you're providing some great advice. But one of the things you say is that as a change maker in a project, you need a foundation of support 
And, you know, it comes with directive for change, a strong sponsor or champion, and sufficient resources. And we, we typically focus on, you know, a directive and resources, but not always this idea of a strong sponsor or champion. Who are you going to go to when things get tough? And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about from your experience and what, the, what, that, di- what difference having that powerful ally makes in making change. Yeah, it's funny. When I, I, we, I interviewed over 40 people in this book over a three-year period, and not just design leaders, but entrepreneurs, people in education, people in the government, you know, I, I, people in social justice, right? And, you know, asking them about what are sort of the conditions for change that are needed. Every single person I interviewed talked about the need to have an executive sponsor, a person who's in a position of power, who is going to support you through thick and thin as you lead this change, you know, and think about it. We all have a boss. We all have a boss. Even if you're the boss, you have a boss, (laughs) right? Because it's like, if you're the CEO of a company, you have the board of directors, right? I mean, everybody's got somebody above them. And because you're going to be facing, depending on what kind of change you are leading, you're going to face resistance. And there, it's not to ignore the resistors and go to sort of go to the sponsor. That That's not what it's about. It's about that's, that sponsor who's going to give you air cover because because one of the another factor is time. You need time. Change initiatives take a long time to employ, right? And there is no finish line when you're leading change. Typically, hmm. you know, there your measure of progress is progress. Measure of of success is progress. And so you need to have somebody who's going to have your back and give you air cover and support you and be your evangelist and be your guidepost. Now you're going to have to deliver in order to you. You're not going to get that support wholesale. You have to make sure that you are delivering and building credibility and trust, and that you're walking the talk and that you're going to do what you say. And so you have to. You still have to show progress and and make change happen in order to gain that support. But the champion is super critical. And a lot of change initiatives fail because the sponsor leaves. Mm. Yep. Right. And so when I was at Autodesk, for example, um, I was I had the support of my boss, Amar Hans Paul, who was sort of the SVP of products at the time. And he reported to Carl Bass, who was the CEO. And both of those people really supported the kind of work and the kind of change that I was wish I was trying to uh, create at Autodesk. But as soon as they left and a new CEO took over, he had a different idea in mind and therefore the support was no longer there. And therefore my job was no longer there. And that happens over and over again. And it's not your fault. You know, you can't control that. There's a lot of things as a change maker that are within your control. And there's a lot of things that aren't within your control and you have to be able to adapt and evolve. But sometimes 
sometimes what you are changing is not is not going to continue but that's okay you need to be satisfied with the progress that you made you've you've put a stake in the ground for somebody else to pick up and take down the field and that's that's different than you know executing and having you know something done it's never done it's never done it's 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 an infinity loop it's about making the world better making something better improving somebody's life and that's about progress and feeling good about the progress that you made in that capacity you're reminding me of a project i was involved in a number of years ago an innovation project by the swedish national police focusing on one specific immigrant area with at-risk youths and they put together this diverse team never had done any design never had done any innovation we had like a, the top strategist and two police chiefs and these this group they went for it, you know and they were just doing a great job and they when they finally were at you know ready to pilot something everybody in the leadership group was gone they had, they, they, they play the musical chairs everyone in the group had moved along but these you know there were especially two that had you know worked hard and they handed off this project but that that support was gone yeah right and and I think that's a little, it sounds a lot like what you're saying is like once, you know, there is a movement in there. There's also, it's also interesting. Uh, we like done. We try to, we aim, most companies aim for done. You know, to say this is right. never going to be done is a really interesting. It's going to make a lot of people very nervous. <laughs> and even this idea of like reality, it takes time. You say smaller change projects can take one to two years, larger ones can take five or more, right? And then you're into this, am I even going to be here in five years? Yeah. Are right? you even going to be there in two? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're going to be there in two. Yeah. But but it kind of, but um, back to this question. So as a change maker, how do I get this champion? How do you, how do you get a champion? I mean, do the champions find you? Do the change makers find the champion? Is there a contract, you know, an agreement? What, what is that? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Nobody's ever asked me that job, that question before. But I mean, it usually comes with the clear directive. Who is asking for the change? Who is asking for that change? And is that per does that is that person in a position of power to give you the time and the people? and the and the and the resources that it takes right you know so so somebody is asking for the change and are they in a position of power and are they able to set up the conditions for success so that you can be successful i, I like to think of it as they have capital to spend it might be mm -hmm. human capital or personal capital yes. or you know actual money yeah. And so it's one is one thing to ask for it. And then the other is like, what kind of capital do you have to do this? And it feels to me like a lot of designers and change makers, they're bad at negotiating. So this your original idea of designers have to be better at business kind of ties into this because that's a business deal. That's a business arrangement in some way to say, oh, I can't wait to do this. But what's going to happen when things get tough? Oh, and yeah. And, and it's so funny because I've been giving talks and I talk about setting the ground conditions for success. And I say that every change initiative needs to have an executive sponsor who has your back. They have to give you the right. You have to have a good chunk of time to, to do it, to do the work. You have to have um, 
the right people in place to help you do the work, right? So time and money and people, right? So uh, will the, you know will the initiative be funded, right? So all these things are conditions for success. And I say if you don't have them, if you don't have the time and the right people and the right resources, it's like pushing water uphill. And people, a lot of people are like, yeah, well, that's like asking for the moon. I said, that's what is needed in order for you to be successful. Now, if you don't have enough time or you don't have the right people, you're going to have to change your expectations. It's not to say that it's impossible, but it might not be it might not be your idea of what's pos can happen is not reasonable or your sponsor's idea is not reasonable. If somebody's being unreasonable of what it's going to take to get this thing done, that's a flag. So don't go in thinking that, you know, you're going to get your, you know, this is going to be great. You're going to suck. You're going to suffer if you don't have the right conditions in place. And if you don't, then change your expectations, maybe identify what is possible with within the conditions. Again, it's this idea of we want passionate, optimistic change makers, but we also want them to be realistic. Exactly. You're also, you're also reminding me of, you know, we do these team charters every time we start a change or design project where the team gets together and says, this is what I need. How can we work together? And and it seems to me like you're giving me an idea for a new template of like, there's a, there's a champion uh, charter, right? Mm-hmm. Once you're in this is like, you go through these exactly, do I have the time, the money? What happens if I don't? Mm-hmm. So that you know, so you're not standing there holding the bag. Mm-hmm. I, I like that. I like that a lot. And again, I think uh, I think we as designers were not very good sometimes at negotiating for our own success. Unfortunately, yeah, we aren't. And and you know, I mean, it's like you, we seem to never have the right resources or the time, right? And again, you have to change your expectation then. So you talk too about this idea of either never done or in the infinite loop, and you also talked about, you know, this uh, idea of of being able to deal with failure because it comes with the process. And mm-hmm. and you talk about a failure spectrum, which I liked, mm-hmm. as as a way of you know uh, the different ways of things that can fail: deviance, mm-hmm. inattention, or incompletion, or complexity. And then you talk about this idea of failure as a coach. Mm-hmm. which I really like, and failure conditioning. And so you're kind of taking this, what we perceive as negative. Failure means not done, but you're turning it into these learning points. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about failure as this positive force rather than just the yeah. negative force. Yeah, um, and that um, failure spectrum is an adaptation from uh, something that we learned from Amy Edmondson, who writes about failure. So I just want to give her credit. And, you know... <laughs> Um, and I remember interviewing Carl Bass for the rise of the DEO. He's featured in that book and he talks about failure. He's, you know, and he, you know, he talks about how failure, if you haven't failed, you haven't, you know, really pushed in, you haven't learned, you haven't like moved the needle if you haven't failed. And he talks about like smart failure versus stupid failure. So that's his (laughs) spectrum. He said, yeah, it's important to have smart failure, but don't have stupid failure right, where you can't really recover or you haven't really thought it through, right? So there is a spectrum for sure around how to fail. 
And there should be a strategy around how to fail. And again, like failure is one of those words that is very triggering for people. Depending who you are, you're going to have a different relationship with that word and that experience. And we talk about failure conditioning where you really get people to, out of the gate, reframe failure as a, as a learning process if you're doing smart failure, not stupid failure, right? <laughs> so, you know, how do you embrace a culture of iteration, right? So, I mean, iteration and agile is kind of built on the notion of failure and learning and lean, right? So there are, there are processes that use different types of terms to convey failure. There are rituals you can do like retrospectives at the end of every process where you talk about the wins and you talk about the challenges and those are failure points, right? So there are so many different ways to reframe failure as learning opportunities. And, you know, then you also have to get comfortable with the fact that you will make mistakes and you have to own your mistakes and it's better to own them than hide them. And then to also take care of yourself when you don't feel great about the failure, like yeah. self-care and, and, you know, maybe go take a walk or lay in a hot tub or, you know, because it's a human emotion and yeah. So, so you, so it's okay to feel bad if you failed about something, but, <laughs> oh, and it reminds me of another thing John Maeda said, failure is easy. Recovery is hard. Yeah. If you haven't failed, you haven't taken enough risks. It's interesting because you're you're into this area, which I think is so interesting around compassion, right? Because you're talking a lot about we have to have compassion for the people we're designing for, but also we have to have self-compassion to kind of take care of ourselves and our teammates that things are going to get tough and how do we take care of each other, which is also part of the change process. You're all, It's interesting to me to see you use design terms in this in the way that you've described failure as we we have to do the reframe right and we have to kind of turn this in a way that makes it a little more positive the one of the things that stuck out in the book is this idea of also using design tools internally we love using the design tools externally to help make this positive change but we also have to use it internally with our internal stakeholders because they're the ones we ultimately will need to convince if they're going to change something within an organization. And this idea of spending time with your stakeholders and influencers in an organization to figure out both who they are and what they need and what they need to see to kind of reduce their resistance, I thought was really extremely interesting that we take those tools and we turn them inward as a precondition for success and change. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the whole thing. It's like, as designers, we are relentless um, advocates for our customers, right? The people who are using our products. We, we go, we, we die in the mantle for them, right? We are like so into our customers, but we tend to ignore um, our um, peers or our mm. internal stakeholders, or um, the people above us, right? And if they are resistant to what we're trying to do, we we kind of go try to go around them. We kind of avoid them, right? 
And the whole, you got, it's the complete opposite here. This is about compassion towards the peers who may or may not be on the same page as you, who may not agree with your change, who might be, become really resistant. So let's understand their motivations. Let's understand what's in it for them. Let's understand what's what they're afraid of. All right, I, we cite this model in the book called the SCARF model that was created by David Rock, Dr. David Rock. He's a neuroscientist. And he says the that people fundamentally are afraid of five things, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And so if those are triggers for people that create resistance. So let's try to understand what those mean, those human fears and, and those human triggers. Let's try to like be compassionate that people are triggered and figure out how we can a de-trigger them and put them at ease, find ways in which we can build trust with our constituents, our stakeholders, and try to find out what, try to get to a shared understanding of what you both want. We, we also get, uh, this is an, another example where language could really get in the way you know, if you're a designer and you're on a product team, you're usually working with a product manager, you're working with data scientists, you're working with engineers, you know, um, and you're working with other designers, you're working with customers. And we may be all on board where we want to create something great for our customers, right? Oftentimes we don't think that. We often think that designers are the only ones that care about the customers. But I would argue that if they're if you're on a product team, you you want to you actually want to create something good at the end of it, right? And good has a different definition depending on who you are. But we use language in different ways that divide us. But when you actually untangle the, the way we all speak differently, we are probably saying the same thing, but we think we're saying things that are different. So a lot of times we have to be multilingual and we have to Sometimes we have to put the words aside and come up with a different set of words that that aren't so triggering and and have a different type of meaning. But that's what I mean is it's like, what is the common goal? What is the shared goal that we we have? And let's start there. Let's start there. Let's build something that we're on board with. And then we could recognize the differences as something that we have to overcome. Well, I love the scarf model. I think it's a, a really smart tool to have in our in our uh, in our minds anyway especially when we're dealing with internal resistors of this idea of it's in some way it's a design research challenge to try to understand what is it that people are afraid of or triggered by in these yeah. in these things and it, but and it's not only in organizations working politically in the US and with change it was like it was so apparent that those those five things were being triggered in really negative ways and if you can't really find a way to bridge over those or include people or understand people, you know, you're just going to get a lot of knee-jerk reactions to some really good things. And I yeah. think that's really a lot of society's problems in general. I think of this change makers. I know you're, you're, you're coming at it really from a design and products and even services. But to me, it, it feels like it, it has a greater relevance in, in, the, mm -hmm. in the societal challenges of our times especially mm -hmm. when, you know, we have a hard time listening to and even wanting to understand people 
who are just trying to trigger each other. Yes. And so I'm wondering as, a, as we kind of wrap this up as our time is winding down, what would you say to current or future change makers out there to give them hope to persevere and push through that it's actually worth doing this? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess I'd go back to the Dalai Lama, you know, what is it? The quote, you are the change that you wish to see in the world, something like that, right? Yeah. It's like, yep. if you really believe that you you want to change things, and in, in, whether it's in your family, or it's in your organization, or it's in a company, or whatever it is, if you believe that, you know, change is worth fighting for, have the courage to step up and accept the mission. And there are tools here that they're going to help you understand how to do that. But, you know, the world needs our help, you know, and we are the people we've been waiting for. So if it's not you, who? So you be the one. And it's worthy. It's a worthy cause. And and the world will be better off if you step up. That's great. To paraphrase, or to, as Hillel said, if not now, when? Yes. So you are the right. change you need to be. That Those are great, inspiring words. And again, your book, Changemakers, offers a great number of ways to help you do that. We'll post a link on our on our pod page. And other than that, I really want to thank you, Maria, for coming and chatting with me. Always a pleasure. Hopefully we won't wait another five years. <laughs> and, uh, and good luck with all of your changes that you're driving through now as well. Thanks. Thanks. Yes, I hope it's not another five years. I hope I get to Sweden sooner than that. Thanks for listening to Innovation Explorers, Hello Futures podcast that dives into the challenges and rewards of innovation. You've just heard a chat with Maria Judice discussing her book, Changemakers. We'll post a link to Maria's book on our site. If you want to chat in person, either in real life or virtually, book a fika with me, as they say in Sweden, anytime. This is Rich Nadwarny from Hello Future. See you next time.